The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Arnold Viersen. I'm the member of, for, of Parliament for Peace River Westlock, Northern Alberta. I, I come to this job pretty honestly. I'm an automotive mechanic. I worked at the Chrysler dealer eight months ago. I was still wearing coveralls. So I had to buy a completely new wardrobe, and uh, now I make my home in, in two places, in Ottawa and Norlandia. It's a significant uh, challenge, significant change in my life, and I've, uh, I, I really su- appreciate the support that I do get from the Reformed churches from around the country, the amount of uh, letters and phone calls that I've received, uh, and the prayers that have been offered on my behalf. Is, I've really appreciated that. So... I was asked this evening to be the moderator of the event. I thought, well, I better do some Google search on this first right off the get-go. And uh, I first Googled our two speakers. I said, well, okay, what are these guys all about? And fairly quickly, I thought, well, maybe two kingdoms. They're talking about the United States and the United Kingdom. And so we're talking about, oh, this could get real exciting. And I'm from Canada. Oh, okay. So I thought, oh, maybe this is where I was going. But I quickly realized that uh, this is a, a probably a, more of an ongoing debate within the United Reformed Church circles. And so seeing as we have probably fairly interconnected within the Reformed communities, um, it's probably something that we are all very interested in. Um, least of all myself, I, I think uh, I probably will learn as much as anybody this evening on what two-kingdom theology is and uh, what God's, God's kingdom, uh, how, how that interplays with our, our culture and our society. And so I, I think it's going to be a, an interesting evening. I'm, I'm happy to be here this evening and moderate, and uh, I look forward to the speeches. We're first going to hear from Dr. Matthew Tuniga. Dr. Tuniga is Associate Professor of Moral Theology Theology at the Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Tuniga received a PhD in Religion and Ethics and Society from Emory University and a Master of Divinity from Mid-Westminster Seminary, California. Dr. Tuniga formerly served as a counter-terrorism intelligence analyst with the FBI and as a legislative correspondent for the Florida Congressman Dave Weldon. Dr. Tuninga is the son of Reverend Calvin Tuninga, pastor of the Covenant United Reformed Church in Pantago, North Carolina, and attended Heritage Christian School in Jordan when his dad was pastored the Trinity United Reformed Church of St. Catharines. Dr. Tuninga is married to Elizabeth, and they have three children. Dr. Tuninga's dissertation on John Calvin and Two Kingdom Theology is scheduled to be published later this year. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Matthew Tuninga. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm grateful to uh, Michael Zweep and all the others who are involved in putting this together. Thankful to be able to speak with Arnold and Joe as well. And also really uh, excited to be back here, see so many friends and familiar faces in a place that's still very near and dear to my heart. Um, throughout his commentaries on the Gospels and Acts, John Calvin observes that the disciples, the twelve disciples, were repeatedly interested in knowing when Jesus 
would establish his kingdom. When all these things would take place because they longed for a kingdom to come immediately and they longed for it to come with earthly pomp and power. But Christ consistently tells them that the time is not yet, that it awaits his return, and that for now their calling is to take up their cross uh, and witness to Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. And just as Christ had to go through a time of suffering only to enter into glory later, so it will be the same for his disciples, so it will be the same for the church. No glory, no triumph is promised to the church this side of Christ's return. Rather, what we are called to is to witness in every area of life to the reconciling lordship of Christ, but in a context of suffering. And the two kingdoms doctrine, two kingdoms theology, is primarily designed to prevent us from over-anticipating glory, over-anticipating triumph. It's to help us answer the question the disciples had. How could it be true that Jesus was Lord? How could Jesus ascend into heaven? And yet there be so much suffering, so much refusal to recognize the Lordship of Christ. So much just going on the way it always has. When we have an over... uh, When we over-anticipate glory or have what some would call over-realized eschatology... It can lead to one of two dangers. On the one hand, because we're so eager to see Christ's lordship asserted, and it doesn't seem to just happen by itself, we're tempted to use the ways of the world to achieve our glory, to achieve political power through coercive means. And this is the social gospel error. This is the triumphalist error. And I think this is always a grave temptation for Christendom. On the other hand, if if that's what we're looking for, we might be just as tempted to sort of withdraw from the world in disappointment and swing back towards a quietist or or pietist response or even something like the Anabaptist sectarian error where if we can't realize the whole lordship of Christ in the world, then we'd rather just be in our own community where we can experience it. So again, Two Kingdoms tries to avoid both those errors, the over-triumphalism as well as the sectarian quietism. Now what I want to do here first, I want to say a few things about what Two Kingdoms theology isn't, then I want to say some things about what it is, and then I'll talk about why I think it's necessary, and finally some of its implications. And all this will be for those of you who were able to get it in the handout that was in the front. So first of all, a few things that Two Kingdoms theology isn't, and yet that I often hear hear people say that it is. First of all, it is not two completely separated, hermetically sealed realms. It's not a way to divide life up neatly into this kingdom and that kingdom, and never the two shall meet. Nor is it some sort of dualistic, neoplatonic distinction between a material and immaterial world or between earth or heaven, or between the body and the soul. Nor is it a contrast between the state and the church, first and foremost. And nor does it align nicely with Kuiper's spheres. Kuiper's spheres are more of a sociological concept, which easily fit with two kingdoms theology, but the spheres are are a sociological way of understanding how society works, whereas the two kingdoms are designed as theological 
concepts. So those are things that Two Kingdoms theology is not. Now, what is Two Kingdoms theology? Well, very simply, in a nutshell, the two kingdoms correspond to the eschatological distinction between the present age and the age to come. The age to come being Christ's kingdom that will reconcile and restore all things, and the present age that we still inhabit and experience. It's that conflict between the already and the not yet that the disciples experienced. And we see uh, a reference to it in, in Ephesians 1 verse 21 in the, con- in the context of Christ's lordship overall. Ephesians 1 21 says that Christ has ascended to the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. In Scripture, the present evil age, uh, from Galatians 1 verse 4, is doomed to pass away, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6. And that is in contrast to the powers of the age to come, which we experience through the Word and Spirit, Hebrews 6 verses 4 and 5. And you see other places in the New Testament where this is described too. For instance, in Luke 20, when Jesus is asked about marriage in the resurrection, in the future Age And Jesus says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So Jesus there is pointing to the same contrast between the two ages. That really is the underlying concept behind the two kingdoms. Now often you'll hear two kingdoms described in the language of one kingdom being a spiritual sort of kingdom. And the other kingdom being a temporal or secular kingdom. And I want to clarify what is meant by those terms. Because again, I think those terms are easily misleading. First of all, when we say that the one kingdom is spiritual, we're not saying that it's immaterial. Or that it's otherworldly in some particular way. What we're saying is that it is what comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. It is of the age to come. It is of the age when Christ is reconciled all things, and consummated it in his kingdom. We call it spiritual because although we experience it already now and we see it working itself out among us, it's through the Spirit that we do so. On the other hand, the word temporal or secular doesn't have anything to do with something being non-religious or anti-religious. Rather, Temporal just came from the concept of what is temporary, what is going to pass away when Christ returns at the end of the age. The word secular actually comes from the Latin word seculum, which in turn is a translation of the Greek word aeon, which in your Bibles is translated age. So Christians said that what is secular are the things of this age that are destined to pass away. So for instance, political authority is secular. Because it bears the sword now, and it will until the time of Christ. But then Caesar and all the other various political authorities are going to pass away. Similarly, as Jesus talked in Luke 20 about marriage. Marriage is of this age, but it is secular because one day it will pass away. That doesn't mean it's not religious. Obviously, it's thoroughly religious in its uh, value and significance. So sometimes you'll hear Christians say things like uh, that Christians reject the idea of the secular. Or that... Um, There should be no such distinction between the spiritual and the secular. And I would submit to you, just from the standpoint of classic Christian theology, that's just a sloppy claim. Christianity invented the secular. There was no concept of the secular before Christianity because everybody 
religion and society was so thoroughly intertwined. And people sought salvation in this world. And it was only when Christianity came along and said, no, the kingdom is coming, but it's not yet. Witness to it faithfully. That suddenly that made all earthly things like slavery and political power and marriage, all the vocations people had, all that suddenly became less significant. It became relative in its significance. It became secular as everyone looked forward to the kingdom that was coming and would transcend all other loyalties and values. So the question is, how does Christ's kingdom break into the present age? Because these two ages, as I said, are not hermetically sealed. They're not completely separated categories. One is breaking into constantly the other. There's a consistent overlap. Well, let me say a few things about that, mostly focusing on things Paul says in Ephesians. First of all, we know from places like Colossians 1, 15 to 20, that Christ not only creates all things, but he is reconciling all things. Nothing exists apart from Christ. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, anything we think of apart from Christ is an abstraction. It has no future value. So we know that. And we know from Ephesians 1 that Christ has ascended as Lord to the lordship over all things. And that he's been given as Lord over all things as head to the church. But then it's interesting to notice where Paul goes from there in Ephesians. He talks about Christ ascending to heaven, right, having defeated his enemies, and pouring gifts on the church. So here we're seeing how Christ's ascent to God's right hand to bring reconciliation to all things begins to be poured on the church. How? Through the gifts given to the church that become expressed in the church's ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And then, moving on from in the second part of Ephesians 4 and into Ephesians 5, this ministry in the church gives rise to the whole body of believers being built up into the new humanity that is Christ, into mature manhood. And then in Ephesians 5 and 6, Christians go out and they witness to Christ and His righteousness, conforming to His image in every area of life, as parents and children, as masters and slaves, as husbands and wives. So there's the Christ ruling his spiritual kingdom by pouring gifts on the church, the church administering that spiritual kingdom, and then Christians in the organic church going out and witnessing in every part of society. But if you look at Ephesians 5 and 6, slavery remains. Paul doesn't assume that slavery is necessarily going to go away right away. And he doesn't assume that it's going to be just. Similarly, with, with marriage, which Jesus said would not be in the age to come, Paul assumes that it's still going to be here. In other words, our vocational contexts for witnessing to Christ's kingdom and to his lordship remain secular. They remain here for the time being. They remain the context for our witness. There are still, in that sense, two kingdoms. The one that Christ rules through institutions that are only here for a short time. And the other that he rules through his word and spirit and the gifts he pours on the church. Now it's important to say, when we're talking about Christ's lordship, that Christians, I said, are witnessing to in every area of life, that this is lordship that we, we witness to. So often, you know, people I think will talk about transforming society into the kingdom, or redeeming everything, and well, I think I know what they sometimes mean by that. I think it would be better, more uh, in accord with the New Testament, to say that we witness to what Christ is doing in every area of life. 
But we ourselves have no power to transform this age into the age to come. All we can witness to is what God is doing in reconciling, to the, reconciling the world and what he will one day do when he consummates all things. But during this age, we don't yet reign with Christ in glory. In that sense, we don't even have the power to go out and make Christ's lordship a reality in other people's lives. We can only witness to it, and we're explicitly told that that will happen as we take up our cross and follow him and expect persecution while we do so. So, for instance, the mindset that Paul wants us to have is well summarized in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And notice how this tells us, this points to Christ's period of suffering and service, and then it points us to Christ's period of glory and triumph. And it says, if we want to someday share in that glory and triumph, first we have to share in his suffering and service. So he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then in Romans 8 verse 17 he says, We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Paul works this out in Colossians 3 just like in Ephesians. We set our minds on things above. Why? Not because we have some sort of neoplatonic dualism, but because we're awaiting for Christ to return and our life is hidden with him. And when he returns, then we also will appear with him in glory. And what are the implications of that in Colossians? They're that we conform to to, to Christ. We put on his virtues. We become the new humanity and witness to the world. So that's what two kingdoms theology is. It is fundamentally a way of expressing What it means to live in that gap between the already and the not yet. And how Christ can be Lord who's reconciling all things. And yet we still have political powers and we still have things like slavery. And we still have all sorts of things in this life that aren't yet the way they should be. And how Christ can still be Lord over politics and Lord over economics and Lord over every area of life. Even though he hasn't yet transformed all those things into his perfect consummated kingdom. Both of those are a reality and we live in a tension between the already and the not yet. Now that leads to the question, why is two kingdoms theology necessary? Why... Why is it necessary to think about this tension with specific reference to politics and cultural engagement? And I'll submit to you three reasons. I'll talk about uh, each one. First, so that we don't retreat into sectarianism based on our disappointment that the world is not, in fact, looking very much like the kingdom of God. And you see Calvin and others use the two kingdoms doctrine explicitly in this context when they're trying to say that the Anabaptists are wrong to say that Christians shouldn't be involved in civil government. The Anabaptists said civil government uses the sword, it's incompatible with Christ's kingdom which is going to be peaceable, therefore Christians can't do it. And the reformers said no because there are two kingdoms here. 
And although not all has been uh, incorporated into Christ's consummated kingdom, yet we have responsibilities here in government which is still under Christ's lordship. Similarly, the monastic movement, the ascetics in the history of the church, saw what Jesus said about marriage and therefore said that true Christians, really godly Christians, shouldn't get married. Because in the kingdom of God, we're not going to be married and our, our call to be fruitful and multiply will be completed. But again, the reformers pointed out, using two kingdoms type logic, that although that might be true of marriage one day, we are not yet in that day. And we still inhabit a world where marriage is important, a fundamental calling for many Christians, and where we are responsible to serve Christ faithfully. So, two kingdoms is necessary to avoid those sort of sectarian retreats from being involved in the ordinary institutions of life. Second, it's necessary so that we don't get seduced by triumphalism in our use of political power. And I'm going to say a little bit more about this um, with specific reference to what uh, Calvin teaches with regard to the law, and especially the law of Israel. And in my uh, book that will hopefully come out at the end of the year, you can see how I will tease this out in great detail. But for now, let me try to give you a bit of an overview. When Calvin's talking about what government should do, or even just what righteousness looks like in society, he distinguishes between... Uh, spiritual righteousness, the kind of righteousness that reflects the, the Holy Spirit conforming us to Christ, the perfect righteousness that reflects the coming kingdom of God, that versus the kind of civil righteousness which the non-regenerate can have. And civil righteousness is not unvaluable. We want our non-believing neighbors to be good, outwardly righteous people, but we don't confuse that with spiritual righteousness. Along with that distinction, Calvin distinguished between three uses of the law, two of which correspond directly to this uh, spiritual civil distinction. The third use of the law, which is the use for Christians, Calvin often called the spiritual use of the law, because this is the use of the law in Christians who have the Holy Spirit and are being conformed to Christ's image. But Calvin said that is not what the government is doing or could ever do when it's enforcing the law through coercive means. It is using the civil use of the law, which Calvin typically referred to as the second use of the law. And if the civil use of the law tries to create spiritual, spiritual righteousness, it will fail. But a constant danger of Christian triumphalism is to try to use political or coercive power to create a sort of Christian spiritual reality. And Calvin argued that that was a fundamental confusion of coercive means and spiritual results. For Calvin, spiritual righteousness can only come through the Word and Spirit, through the ministry of God's Word. Now, Calvin worked this out directly in relation to the law of Israel. Many people have quoted and are familiar with Calvin's argument that the laws of Israel, the civil laws of Israel, are only supposed to guide us today in our political engagement insofar as they reflect the sort of the rule of love or of equity or of natural law that is binding in all times and places. In other words, the civil law of Israel only binds us today insofar as it reflects God's eternal moral will, insofar as that applies to society. 
We can't just quote an Old Testament law from the Torah about some punishment, for instance, uh, for Sabbath breaking, uh, the, the death penalty. We can't simply quote that and say we should do that today. Similarly, Calvin said, it is never a simple matter of knowing how to apply even the moral principles that we find in Israel's civil law. It's never a simple matter of trying to figure out how we should apply that today because we're in such different circumstances. So we have to figure out what is part of God's moral law or the law of love, natural law, but we also have to figure out how to apply it in our unique set of circumstances. In addition to that, Calvin was aware that much of Israel's civil law reflected its unique typological position right, as a type of the coming kingdom of God. So there were certain things that were to be expressed in Israel's civil laws that were unique to a people set aside as God's people and that we can't expect all nations and all polities to conform to, not even ones that seem to be Christian. But fourth, and this is the one I want to emphasize most, Calvin pointed out that Israel's civil law tolerated a lot of sin due to the hardness of human hearts. And his go-to text for that was what Jesus said about the law of divorce. Right When they came to Jesus and said, well, Moses said it's okay for someone to divorce his wife. And Jesus said, well, Moses tolerated that because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not so. And he makes it quite clear that while the civil law, even the civil law of God's people Israel, may have permitted divorce, that did not make it morally right. That did not make it a matter of spiritual righteousness. And Calvin says, it's not just Israel's law that had to tolerate sin. That's true of all civil law. If it was true of God's people Israel, surely it's true of contemporary polities today. Now, Calvin didn't just say that about the law of divorce. He applied it to a range of commands that in his reading of the Torah clearly were tolerating human sin, that were not intended to be prescriptive necessarily, but were simply sort of trying to make the best of a terrible situation. For instance, laws permitting polygamy. He said this about laws permitting the murder of captives in war. Not with reference to the Canaanites, where God actively commanded them to put all the Canaanites to death, but with other countries, where it's clear from the text that the text commands them to spare the women and children, right, when they kill the captives. And Calvin's response to that is, well, clearly it's barbaric and against natural law to murder somebody who has surrendered to you. So Calvin says God's clearly tolerating this due to the hardness of human hearts. He says the same thing about the law that permitted the Israelites to force a captive woman into marriage. Right? The law said you could force a captive woman into marriage, and then if you were unhappy with her, you couldn't sell her to someone else. You had to divorce her. You had to let her go. And Calvin's response to that is, well, it was obviously wrong for them to force foreign women into slavery, into slave marriages like this. But God tolerated that due to the hardness of their hearts, and then he regulates it accordingly so that they don't take even more advantage of these women. And finally, you get this. Another example he gives of this is when a husband who's a slave, and his whole family is in slavery, uh, when that husband wants to be free, but his wife and children are still bound to the master, Calvin says that that freed husband can divorce his wife in order to attain his freedom. And here again, Calvin says, that's a terrible thing. It should never have to happen this way. But because of the hardness of human hearts, 
God has to do these things. The point of all of that is that if that was true in Old Testament Israel, how much more today? Where governments are going to have to tolerate sin due to the hardness of human hearts and sometimes regulate situations simply to make the best uh, of a bad situation. Because again, we're not in the realm of spiritual righteousness. We're in the realm of civil righteousness. What also comes from this in Calvin is that we need to take very seriously the role of general revelation in our political engagement. Of course, general revelation includes the concept of natural law. But it simply means that it's not just enough to find a proof text for everything that we do. We need to also use reason. We need to use science. We need to use experience to figure out the best way to apply God's moral principles in the actual context and amid the complexities in which we live. Calvin said that all truth of general revelation, insofar as it is true, always comes from the Spirit of God. And so if we ever reject general revelation, we are equally rejecting the Spirit of God. So that's the second reason why it is necessary. And that is, again, so that we don't get seduced by triumphalism in politics. In other words, we don't have too lofty of expectations for what politics can accomplish. Third reason it's necessary is so that we don't politicize the church. I've I've made the argument, especially from Ephesians 4, that Christ communicates the power of His spiritual kingdom through His Word and Spirit. And the Reformed tradition has typically said that this is so important to the identity of the church that these are, in fact, the marks of the church. Right? The preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. These are the ways that Christ is governing. And although not a mark, right, the Reformed tradition has also made the diaconate very important as a fourth way that we witness to this reality. In fact, for Calvin, the need for church discipline was probably the most concrete implication of his two kingdoms theology. And Calvin was willing to be banished from Geneva, was banished from Geneva, and then said he would not come back unless he could get church discipline. And if you go and look at his arguments for that, it's consistently because we cannot confuse the spiritual kingdom, Christ's spiritual government of his church, which requires discipline. We can't confuse that with the state. And just because the state disciplines people doesn't mean that satisfies the requirement that the church have its own spiritual discipline. But this also means, and this is an important part, I think, of what many people are concerned about when they advocate a two-kingdom theology. And that's the church isn't sort of given the preaching authority or given the discipline authority or the sacramental authority to then do with it whatever it wants, to say whatever it happens to think, to discipline whatever things it doesn't happen to like. Rather, as Calvin consistently says, the church's authority is bound up within the word. A pastor can't proclaim what the word doesn't teach. A church can't discipline people for doing things that the word doesn't prohibit and so forth. Many of the things going on in secular life are not necessarily in their at least particular details addressed by Scripture. They might be in their general details, which the church should proclaim. But the church needs to be careful not to get politicized by going beyond the authority it has from the Word. So let me conclude then 
by trying to make this maybe a little bit more practical, why I think this matters so much uh, in terms of its implications. And I've kind of put a few pithy ways of saying it here, or at least I've tried to make them pithy. Um, this is Canadianized. But don't confuse Canada with the kingdom of God. I don't think you should confuse America or any other polity either, of course. We are in the realm of civil law, not spiritual law. Civil righteousness, not spiritual righteousness. And so we must assume that we are dealing with people characterized by the hardness of heart. Not just non even Christians have hardness of heart, of course, but especially non-believers who have not yet believed and not yet participated in the work of the Spirit. And although we will one day reign with Christ, in the present age, and I think this is where, you know, when Kuiper said there's not a single square inch of which Jesus Christ does not declare mine, Kuiper was absolutely right. What's wrong is when Christians think that that means that therefore we have to go claim lordship over everything. As if we are going to experience that triumph and that glory right now. But Christ had to first suffer and serve and die. And, and ascend to heaven before he experienced that glory. And he has always called the church now to experience it in the same way. And so the way we express the lordship of Christ is through sacrificial service in every area of life, through our willingness to witness to Christ's righteousness in every area of our life, taking up our cross and following him. And here's why I think it's so important to recognize this. If we don't think of it that way, if we don't think of our fundamental calling as being to conform to the image of Christ, including on the way of suffering, if we expect something better than what happened to our Lord, it will create in us the root of bitterness when we don't experience that reality. We will become bitter when we don't experience what we had hoped to experience. Because we somehow thought that the world would treat us better than it treated our Lord. And that bitterness will, of course, come out. And I think you can look at this among some Christians today where they're exceedingly bitter towards the world or towards their non-believing neighbors because they're so disappointed, and rightly so, at the way culture is going or politics is going. But what I would say is, well, it's good to be disappointed, and it's good, and we ought to long for complete restoration. We should expect what Christ told us to expect, and that's that we will witness, but we will suffer. And we rejoice over our victories, but we don't necessarily expect them. So we don't confuse Canada or the United States or whatnot, or Britain, sorry Joe, with the kingdom of God. Second... Respect God's general revelation in your non-believing neighbors. I've already talked about how political and social judgments inevitably require dependence on general revelation, whether in the form of reason or scientific knowledge or experience, whatnot. Anyone who's involved in anything in the world knows this. What Calvin points out is that in any particular matter of general revelation, non-believers often have better knowledge than believers. Not always, but often they do. And in fact, we all err, we all make mistakes, and sin corrupts us, our, our weakness corrupts us such that we can't interpret general revelation perfectly. So we need to be humble. And what I would suggest is that 
If our main goal is Christ-like witness, not our own version of triumph or political lordship, then our main goal should be to actually be Christ-like in the way that we're witnessing and interacting with our neighbors. And that means that when we're acting with our neighbors on things, matters of general revelation, where people might disagree, where others might have more knowledge than us, we need to love them, show Christ-like love for them by engaging them in ways that, that reflect humility, reasonableness, and respect. Not lording it over them like the Gentiles do, but serving. Those are all virtues of Christ to which we are called, even in the realm of politics. We cannot expect non-believers to have embraced the gospel as the premise for supporting our practical political implications. So yes, we witness to them always, to the gospel and its realities. But when the rubber hits the road, we still have to make a decision on this tax policy or this highway or whatnot. And so when we're making arguments about those things, we don't make agreement about the gospel a premise for it. That's not the way of love. The way of love is to learn to work with people, to be reasonable with them, to be humble with them, even if we don't agree on more ultimate matters. And then the final implication. Let the church be the church. Both as institution, by which I mean the church that preaches the word, administers the sacraments, administers discipline, and the diaconate, and as organism, by which I mean the church of believers as it goes out, all of us in our vocations in every area of life. As institution, and of course you'll recognize this comes from Abraham Kuyper, but it's very consistent with Calvin's Two Kingdoms theology. As an institution, the church ministers the authority of Christ. It has to preach the gospel as God's Message of good news for the reconciliation of the entire cosmos. The reconciliation of all things. It has to preach all the righteousness of the kingdom. What it means for the dignity of human beings made in the image of God. The kind of love and communion and fellowship and peace to which we are called. We're supposed to preach that. And that message that we preach is the ultimate horizon by which all human endeavors are always to be judged. Nothing has any existence apart from Christ. And that means even politics is all subject to that ultimate declaration of God's promises. The church isn't supposed to just preach this. It's supposed to embody it in the sacraments. right? The way we come together, rich and poor, male and female of whatever ethnicity, around a common table. In baptism, in discipline. In the way we discipline those who show by their lives the denial of the gospel. And in the diaconate, the way we give material expression to the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Because it's not just immaterial. The church should do all of those things. Calling sin, sin, even when committed by the state. But, never going beyond the bounds of God's word. Never imagining that Christ has somehow given us authority to say whatever we want about anything. Our authority is always contained within the Word. So let the church be the institution of the church. Let it do that job, but let it not go beyond that job and try to micromanage the implications of that in society. And then let the church's organism be the church's organism where Christians, hearing this proclamation, 
joining in the sacraments together, being disciplined by the church, sharing with one another through the diaconate, we then go out in every area of life. And as best as we can, according to the measure of wisdom and prudence that God has given us, as Paul says in Ephesians 5 and 6, we go into our various vocations and seek to do everything in a Christ-like manner. Are you a slave? You might not necessarily be freed, but try to be a Christian slave. And someday know that your slavery will end. But the point here is that this is the matter for the church's organism to do. The Bible doesn't give the church's institution the authority to micromanage the organic church's engagement and culture. Now, it is true that in the Old Testament era, the law did regulate with much more detail the life of of the people of God. But Paul talks about this directly in Galatians when he says that those who were children were in need of a tutor. But we are now our children of God, sons of God, and have been called to maturity, to the mind of Christ, called to wisdom, to prudence, to love. And so, as mature Christians, we are called to go out, keeping each other accountable, talking to each other, doing it collectively, doing it as individuals, but working these things out, conforming our own lives to the image of Christ in our various vocations. And it is our right of Christian liberty to do that without the church micromanaging us. Yes, again, remember, we're subject to the church's discipline on what the word clearly teaches. We're subject to the church's uh, proclamation. But when it comes to so many of the practical implications of that, we have Christian liberty. We are children, not slaves. And that is a matter of vocation for us. We need to be free to witness to Christ's kingdom in every area of life without that constantly being managed by somebody else. So, the three implications I've said. Don't confuse Canada with the kingdom of God. Respect general revelation in your non-believing neighbors. And let the church be the church, witnessing to the kingdom, both as an institution and as an organism. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tuninga, for your perspective. Our next perspective comes from Dr. Joseph Boot. Dr. Joseph Boot is a senior pastor at Westminster Chapel in Toronto, founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christian Christianity and the director of the Wilberforce Academy in London, UK. Dr. Boot previously served as a Canadian director of the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and is the author of a number of books, including Searching for Truth, Why I Still Believe, How Then Shall We Answer, and his latest work, The Mission of God. Dr. Boot received a PhD in Christian Intellectual Thought from Whitefield Theological Seminary and a master's degree from the University of McMaster. Dr. Boot lives in Toronto with his wife Jenny and their three children, Naomi, Hannah, and Isaac. Please welcome me in joining Dr. Joseph Boot. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be here and privileged to have the opportunity to participate in this discussion. Um, many of the uh, uh, discussions that I'm involved with historically have been with non-believers, and they're more like debates. So this is a, uh, a much more friendly environment to be in, and uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Matthew, for your uh, excellent address to us um, tonight. 
my master's degree was actually from uh, Manchester University, not McMaster, but that's just, uh, just for the record. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> thank you, uh, Michael Sweep, and uh, to all of those who have organized this event. And uh, it's a real joy to be part of it for those who've uh, made it possible for it to happen tonight. Thank you. So we are considering this evening the two kingdoms theology and its implications for culture. And I think tonight has already been a good illustration that talking about it is like walking into a foggy room. And I don't mean that as in any way an insult to Matthew, uh, but just simply to say that the numerous versions of this two kingdoms thought and the quantity of the literature and the what seems to me to be equivocation with terms like kingdom, church, sphere, age, realm that some of the two kingdoms advocates engage in, especially I think those who are, are seeking to uh, narrow the distinctions that have been previously stated mean that it's not easy for us actually to understand. And I think uh, um, certainly I learned some things tonight. At least I learned about what Matthew, Dr. Tuninga, uh, believes two kingdoms theology be, to be in terms of John Calvin. Um, but I've tracked with this debate, and I'm sure many of you have, and um, uh, David Van Drunen, for example, and Michael Horton have thrown out some very pithy one-liners that stick in your mind. There's no Christian way to change a diaper, for example, or there is no such thing as a Christian stir-fry, which are humorous, and they seem compelling. Well, it's obvious, of course, they're, they're, the people think that there is no such uh, thing as a Christian way to do a stir-fry until, of course, you think about this more carefully. And you consider Islam. Sharia law actually does govern how you go to the toilet. And actually, the ancient Greek cynics would defecate in public to show their contempt of all uh, law and order. Um, and regarding stir-fries, I guess the question would be whether you're an 18th century cannibal living in the Caribbean, where you might enjoy stir-fried man flesh rather than stir-fried chicken, or in fact, whether you might be a Muslim or a Jew who is governed by very strict and distinctive food laws. I'll return to that a bit later on. In other words, from the one-liners that come out and are heard and circulated about the two kingdoms way of thinking, and I don't think it's just limited to the Dutch reform conversation. This is a big issue in England. I did a debate uh, recently in the UK on this with a leader profoundly influenced by these different authors, Daryl Hart, Michael Horton, David Van Drun, and, and so forth. Um, now, um, Dr. Tuninga has written that uh, David Van Drunen's statement of the Two Kingdoms theology, at least he has written in the past, is the gold standard for understanding what it's supposed to be, what, it's, what it is actually expressing. And so in preparation for this, I had to kind of work with something, so I was working with um, David Van Drunen's articulation of Two Kingdoms Theology. We can eagerly await Matthew's book on uh, John Calvin. And I, so I want to make a few general remarks and then come to the rub of what I think are some of the core issues facing us with respect to this. I do think that it is uh, more than just a question of mild emphasis here and there. I do think it has implications for how we engage with culture. And I do believe, uh, rightly or wrongly, that we're actually dealing with, in the major articulations of the two kingdoms theology, a variation actually of Roman Catholic theology's nature, grace, 
dualism, a two-story scholastic distinction that I think David Van Drunen has uh, popularized for Protestantism or Protestantized it. He turned it into a Protestant doctrine. He actually graduated from Loyola in Chicago. I think he became very taken with Aquinas and the Catholic nature grace doctrine and natural law theory. And I think he's been trying to marry that with a more covenantal view of um, Christianity. He has actually openly rejected the plot line of creation, fall, redemption as a total life view for Christians. He regarded it as an invention of Hermann Doivert. And he's actually rejected the very idea of a strictly Christian worldview as something he says is borrowed from German idealism. In fact, he stated, and I quote, a Christian answer to every question? There isn't one. There are a range of answers on how to use specific things in the world. The idea that there isn't then a covenant-keeping and a covenant-breaking answer to all the issues at hand points, I think, to the heart of this matter. Now, I'm not so interested as to whether we use the term worldview or not. I'm aware of its um, German idealist origins. We can talk about the scriptural perspective or whatever. I think that's irrelevant as to whether we believe, fundamentally, is God's world bifurcated into two realms, a common kingdom as it's been typically defined, and a redemptive kingdom. Now, a common kingdom and a redemptive kingdom as a bifurcation of reality is a worldview. Uh, You can call it something else, but it's a way of looking at the world. One realm, the 2K advocates typically say, is governed by natural law, which I think is actually primarily a Stoic, not a Christian concept. The other by special revelation, so that Christians find themselves to some degree playing musical chairs. At least this is my impression of reading the literature. I may be a bit of a thicky. Um, uh, That's okay. I can be helped in my understanding. But it feels as though I've got to play musical chairs between these two kingdoms as I move about into different realms. And it's unclear, I think oftentimes, it's unclear for a lot of scholars who've tried to engage this material, which kingdom you're actually standing in at any given time. That's why I've described it as something as a fog in trying to understand it. Now, the focus of much of the debate has been on historical theology, which it is true uh, theologians often confuse with Scripture, i.e., what did Augustine think, what did Calvin think, what did Luther think? What did they mean by the terms two kingdoms? And uh, I think that's an important question. I don't think it's the heart of the conversation tonight. Um, And I am concerned in reading Van Drunen on his book on natural law that he seems to get by pretty much without Scripture. So whatever the truth is about what Calvin thinks two kingdoms meant, what Luther thought it meant, what Augustine meant by the terms and so forth, I don't think that can determine today for us how we engage the gospel with culture. I happen to think, for what it's worth, that um, Calvinism was very quickly expressed uh, in Geneva and then by John Knox in Scotland, and then by the Puritans in England, and then the Puritans in the United States. And I think that their city on a hill understanding of the gospel uh, was a one-realm understanding of reality, of the gospel, and of its implications. Now, the two kingdoms are thinking in its different versions, and as I say, I learned some things tonight on the basis of what uh, Matthew has had to say about his understanding of what this all means. It we should be reminded that it is emanating from the comfortable halls of white, middle-class Christian enclaves like Escondido, not the fires of persecution in the Church of Pakistan or even the fires of trouble in Puritan England. 
And I don't actually think it's viable to take a doctrine seriously uh, in most of the rest of the world where Christians, or much of it, where Christians are suffering. What can really be said of the notion of a common kingdom governed by natural law that everyone essentially agrees on, where Christians are being beheaded and raped and their children murdered in front of them, like Syria today, for example? So I'll be arguing tonight, I'll be suggesting that there is, the, the, the Bible knows nothing of a common and redemptive kingdom. It only knows of God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, of darkness and of light, of covenant keepers, of covenant breakers. And what we have in common with the non-believer is that we all live in God's creation. We all live in his world. His word governs all things, and we live under the blessings and cursings of his law. We live under his norms. The non-believer is an outlaw in God's earth. He's a rebel to the kingdom of God. The Christian is to be faithful to it. The non-believer formally denies, of course, what we're saying about God and his word, but he's always nonetheless sustained by God's word in creation and as revealed in Scripture. In other words, the non-believer constantly lives in God's world on borrowed capital. But this is what Paul says about these two realities. 2 Corinthians 6, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? There seems to be there two fundamentally different ways, ethical ways of living in and understanding the world. Finally, by way of my prologue here, I do think that sociologically and culturally that the two kingdoms doctrine primarily is driven not essentially by its biblical cogency or apologetic cogency, but because it represents an exit door from the confrontation of God's kingdom in our time with the culture that's deteriorating around us. It provides an alternative to the antithesis of Kuiper. The fundamentalists in the USA dream of escaping creation with Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, don't they? via the rapture. And now I think some in reform circles are hoping to leave the common order to its own way so that the creation, the common order, the common kingdom just do its own thing so we don't have to be bothered by it. We'll just reform the church and exercise church discipline and serve the sacrament. But let's not worry about everything that's going on out there. We can't do anything about it. I think both views are escapist. Scripture nowhere commands commonality What Scripture commands is obedience. So, here are my three difficulties in my reading so far of the two kingdoms literature. Number one, there's a philosophical problem. Number two, there's a theological problem. Number three, I think there's a sociological problem. A philosophical, a theological, and a sociological problem. First, the philosophical problem. I actually do think that there is an assumption of some kind of duality that is influenced by Greek thought Matthew mentioned Plato, uh, the realm of ideals on the one hand, the material realm on the other. The Neoplatonists had the spiritual and the material. Uh, These weren't two different ways of describing the same uh, reality. They were actually different ontological realms. And the division was always conceived in terms of a higher order and a lower order. An upper story that was more important and a lower story that was less important. The Roman Catholic formulation was nature, grace. Grace supplements or elevates the lower order. 
Now, in the formulation that I've read at least thus far of the two kingdoms' view, we have a higher story, which is the realm of redemption in Christ, the upper story. That's the most important because that's eternal. It's not temporal. Then you have the lower realm of common culture. That's less important. It's only transitory. It's not that they conceive of nature as evil, as I can tell, or um, even incomplete, but rather it doesn't have, the common order does not have a direct relationship with grace, with redemption. I think it seems to me that that's the whole point of the 2K doctrine. Grace needs to mind its own business and stay in the church car park and in the church kitchen. Nature and grace run on parallel tracks, but they don't really meet. That's why David Van Drunen has a problem with talking about the transformation of culture or the redemption of culture or of creation. Now, if the two kingdoms were simply saying that church and state are two jurisdictions or spheres under God, I have no difficulty with that. I have no difficulty with the majority of what Matthew has said this evening. Or that there is the kingdom of darkness and light. Or even that the present age is not identical with the coming age. If it's just that that we're saying, then we don't really have a difficulty. But the 2K advocates seem to be arguing there are two realms that don't really meet. Scripture indicates, I think, though, that there is one creation made by the triune God in the beginning, a unified reality, and that it's life its civilization, its culture, has to be considered in terms of two different ethical, moral, or covenantal perspectives. In Christ, outside of Christ. Covenant keeping, covenant breaking. The regenerate heart, the unregenerate. Now, I think Bavink puts his finger right on the problem when when he says this, and I quote, at the bottom of every serious question lies the self-same problem. The relation of faith and knowledge, theology and philosophy, the authority of authority and reason, of head and heart, Christianity and humanity, of religion and culture, of heavenly and earthly vocation, of religion and morality, of the contemplative and the active life, of Sabbath and workday, of church and state, all these and many other questions are determined by the problem of the relation between creation and recreation between the work of the Father and the work of the Son, end quote. Now, what's Bavink's resolution to this duality, this bifurcation? His resolution is we cannot view God's redemptive grace as discontinuous with or juxtaposed with the original creation. It cannot be unrelated to God's original purpose. If the 2K dualism is right, then Christ's work of redemption is not directly related to the Father's work of creation through the Son. If a common creational kingdom exists parallel to a redemptive kingdom with unrelated purposes, God has an identity crisis. And if he does, I do. We'll actually end up setting up false dichotomies between sacred and secular. And I agree with what Matthew said about the provenance of the term uh, 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 secular, it has to do with this world's uh, the worldly jurisdiction. Nature and grace, though, uh, is a bifurcation that is a reality, and I think we can use um, secular and sacred in more common parlance, the way most people understand it today. I think a better actual uh, uh, understanding would be sacred and profane. I think we are called to make everything, in the end, finally, into God's Eden, 
to make it all sacred. In short, then, all dualism divides human life in the wrong place in violation of Scripture. It results in a dividing line being driven through history in some way rather than through the heart of man. This is what the proverb says, out of the heart spring the issues of life. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're commanded to love God with all our hearts. That's the most basic fundamental commandment. Paul tells us that God's judgment discloses, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the purposes of the heart. The renewed, purified heart and the rebellious heart are the two basic conditions of man, and they define the two kingdoms, darkness, light. And Jesus actually says, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you, Luke 17, 21. So we can't point to the visible church and say, look, there's the kingdom of God, since God's kingdom issues from the heart. That is, wherever Christ reigns in your life and mine, there his kingdom is, in the family, in the home, in the church, wherever it may be where Christ is reigning. Our hearts, as they are transformed, redirect our lives in every activity at the very root of our being so that God's redemptive work in Christ changes everything, not just some things. When uh, World Magazine and Christianity Today, for example, tell us that 40% of evangelical pastors in North America are addicted to hardcore pornography, we can't really say, look, the kingdom of God in the church. We'd have to say that's not an expression of the kingdom of God, even though it's within the spiritual, redemptive kingdom. This fact, I think, the idea that the demarcation in life, in the Bible's understanding, is right through the heart, not through an institution, that that rules out all dualism and the idea of a common kingdom, as David Van Drunen has argued, in living in God's two kingdoms. He essentially argues that Christ's resurrection and ascension and establishment of the church, he said, and I quote, have not changed the truths of calculus or the way water flows or the obligations of the plumber. Now, of course, we can formally agree with that, can't we? I can certainly agree with that. But we can't agree with it if it's a justification of a dualistic idea of a common kingdom that's distinct from God's, excuse me, I need that, otherwise I'll be here all night, redemptive kingdom. David Van Drunen and many of the Two Kingdoms advocates confuse, it seems to me here, structure and direction in creation. At the fall, for example, Satan could not alter the laws and norms of God's creation because creation serves and obeys Christ. Now, of course, none of us would argue that water is now flowing in a different direction or that the laws of calculus, if we can call them that, are different for the believer and the unbeliever. A physical law describes what is. A mathematical law describes what is. But there are also norms or moral laws in God's creation. And they will be either obeyed or disobeyed. It's man's rebellion against God's word in creation and scripture that places him in the kingdom of darkness, in his vocation, marriage, school, and every other sphere. His rebellious mind and heart affects every aspect of life and thinking so that he needs to be redeemed. Every thought needs to be brought into captivity to Christ. Now, that is what we call, in my understanding, redemption, restoration. 
And the whole point of it is that God was, to, was trying to, was in fact, not trying to, he was maintaining his original purpose for creation, so much so that he sends his son into it to die, who was both the image of the invisible God and the second Adam. So that Jesus is called both of these things in the New Testament because his work directly connects God's original creation of Adam with the image of God. Grace is thereby restoring and perfecting creation and bringing God's original purposes to fulfillment. Grace is organically related, I'm saying, to creation and recreation to creation. They're not distinct realities. However, whatever terms we use to try and divide them up. Now, the seriousness of this philosophical error, this ontological dualism, culminates in Dr. Van Drunen's thinking in his absolute mauling, I think, of Romans 8, 19 through 24, where Paul tells us that all creation is longing for the resurrection, having been subjected to frustration, in hope of the creation being liberated into the freedom of the children of God. Paul argues the liberation of creation from futility is bound up with the resurrection of man. That is, redemption has decisive implications for all the creation. That seems to be the argument of Paul in Romans 8. But in Van Drunen's book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, he once again brings his philosophical dualism to bear. Creation isn't meant to last forever. Recreation is a distinct realm. And so he interprets, in terms of a radical dualism, Paul's words as creation giving way or yielding itself to the new creation, so as though the longing of creation is to be euthanized, not redeemed and restored. Creation will give place, and that is for Van Drunen why the two kingdoms are not to be confused and mixed. But if that's the case, what about the incarnation? What about the resurrection of the body? There'd be no continuity. So, Dr. Van Drunen recovers his Christianity and says, our earthly bodies are the only part of the present world that scripture says will be transformed and taken up into the world to come. And he draws that from a text describing the longing of the creation, the whole creation, for liberation. Now, he does concede the resurrection of the body because he wants to remain orthodox. He is a Christian. But it reveals that philosophical dualism mauls the Bible and places this creation in some way out of the reach of redemption of the gospel. The biblical gospel doesn't just resurrect bodies, friends, does it? But minds, hearts, relationships, soul, our work. In fact, um, Dr. Teninga has said tonight, we, don't, we, we merely witness God's kingdom established at the end, especially. But I think we work and pray for it, as what the Bible says to us is that we are his fellow workers. Now, when we pray, thy kingdom come, which kingdom are we talking about first? Jesus doesn't say, thy two kingdoms come. He says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And scripture is actually clear, I think, that our works go with us into eternity. What does Paul say? We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. 
because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If it survives, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? I don't think we're just observing. I think we're praying and we're working as fellow laborers in terms of the purposes of the kingdom of God. Herman Bavinck summed it up this way. He says, Christianity creates no new cosmos, but rather makes the cosmos new. The theological problem, Matthew 12. Well, the 2K theology, in terms of this idea of a common and redemptive kingdom with their own origin, norms, and destiny, apparently, as I understand it, don't directly overlap. There is a functional dualism. Now, of course, Dr. Van Drunen and certainly Matthew do not believe themselves dependent on philosophical dualism to support a common kingdom and a redemptive kingdom bifurcation. They think it's rooted in creation and recreation. The norms of the common kingdom, these universal moral principles, are distinct from the norms of the other special revelation, at least to some degree. Now, to me, the distinction seems arbitrary. So how is that scheme to be justified? And the answer, actually, of David Van Drunen, at least, is the Noahic covenant. Now, unless it's just me, I mean, unless I'm the only one reading this stuff, this seems to me to be the main argument that's been put forward to justify this. This is meant to recapitulate creation and is meant to guarantee the common life and values of all men in the common kingdom. Dr. Van Drunen writes, and I quote, A two kingdoms doctrine distinguishes what is uniquely Christian from what is simply human. Generally speaking, to be human here and now means living in a common kingdom under the Noahic covenant. Christians share the life and activities of the common kingdom with all human beings. What differentiates them from the rest of humanity is their identification with the redemptive kingdom. End quote. Now, typically, we're told that culture, society, family, etc. are in the common kingdom allegedly established in the Noahic Covenant. So that's why we can't speak of redeeming it. It's common. The language of the gospel doesn't transfer to the common kingdom, at least for Van Drunen. So we have no warrant to apply special revelation in particular to transform culture by the gospel. David Van Drunen writes, we would do well, I believe, to discard familiar mantras about transformation, and especially redemption. Nowhere does Scripture call us to such a grandiose task. They are human dreams rather than God-given obligations. That's page 171. Okay. Well, since the common kingdom already shares the believer's norms in common, it's obviously pointless to redeem something that isn't sick or doesn't require any healing, doesn't require any renewal. Why redeem something that's already perfectly fitted to the task of being a neutral area between believer and non-believer? It has to be neutral, despite the objections I've heard to that, or autonomous, or it couldn't be common if the issue of the heart is central. As a result, the project that we're actually set with Two Kingdoms Theology is massive. It, It means the problematic challenge of working out how to divide up reality. And the covenant with Noah is given the burden of justifying this scheme theologically. Now, the first time covenant is mentioned in Scripture is Genesis 6.18. After the flood, it's mentioned again in Genesis 9.11. And it, they're connected. 
in, actually, in Genesis 6, 8, though, we read, Noah found favor, and the word there is hen, grace, in the eyes of the Lord. We're told, actually, that uh, he was righteous and blameless, and he walked with God in Genesis 6, 9. These terms all presuppose a covenant relationship already. God says, this is my covenant. So the covenant is introduced as something that's already there. It's already a fixed structure. If this is only with Noah a covenant of common grace, and that is a, Bible, a term the Bible doesn't use, then the first mention of the covenant of grace would be with Abraham. And I don't think any Reformed people would think there was no grace before the time of Abraham. This can't be the case, obviously, because God renews a covenant with righteous Noah that's already been in existence. So Genesis 6 reveals not just a covenant with nature, I would argue, but a covenant with a place in the salvation history of the world. Think about what happens in those chapters of Genesis. There's an offering of clean cattle and fowl by Noah. What are offerings for? The Lord accepts this sacrifice. Then there's a blessing on Noah and his sons, which repeats repeats the original blessing in paradise. Then there's stipulations concerning food, which, by the way, included the eating of meat with blood in it. What do we do with that? Um, Manslaughter and murder, etc. Then there's a proclamation of sanctions against transgression of those stipulations. Then the, the blessing is repeated again. Then there's a promise that God won't flood the earth again, and then the rainbow is given as a covenant sign. What what has Canada done with the covenant sign of the rainbow today? So we have blessing and cursing. We have offerings and sacrifices as seal of the covenant. God speaks to Noah as as his vassal, as his servant, and God both initiates and is the guarantor of this covenant. Now, I would not deny that the fruits of this covenant are enjoyed by the non-believer. Jesus says, doesn't he, the sun rises on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. But that doesn't mean, it doesn't remove the fact that it's a covenant of grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Cannot be a so-called common grace covenant, even though creation is involved. Grace is never common, that is general. It's always covenantal, it's always particular. Let me just quickly quote to you. I know I'm speaking fast. Just keep up. Uh, Dr. Van der Waal states it this way. He says, and I quote, "It It is not so that redemption rests on creation. Nature does not form the first floor and grace the second. In God's gracious dealings with his people, all creation is involved. The world sacrifice Noah made foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. His unique and perfect sacrifice brings the restoration of all things, also the salvation of the eagerly longing creation. We may not think of categories like general and special as if the covenant with Noah was a general covenant and that with Abraham a special one. It is all or nothing. The whole of creation is for God's people and hence its use was given to Noah and his seed, but not to them as a general people, but as participants in the covenant. Those who disassociate themselves with the covenant waive the right to recreation. End quote. So Noah leaves his family, uh, leaves his country rather, like Abraham. He boards the ark, then Exodus. He goes through an Exodus on the ark. The ark is obviously typological of salvation. Peter tells us actually it's a type of baptism. 
which is the sign of the covenant. This is not some general abstract covenant. And on leaving the ark, he's recommissioned with the cultural mandate. It's reminiscent of Genesis 1.28. So the root of the theological error of the two kingdoms theology, I think, is the idea that creation and man can be generalized as abstractions. So God allegedly creates man in general. But I don't think this is the case. Genesis 1 through 3 is part of the gospel. And right in Genesis 1 through 3, you have the promise of the first seed promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. It is why Christ is the second Adam. It's why he's the truly obedient son. You have this historical continuity of creation and redemption. Creation is the historical prologue of the gospel. Adam isn't a man in general in a common kingdom. Noah is not a man in general in a common kingdom. They are God's vice regents. They are vassals. Adam, Abel, Enoch, they're God's covenant men. Covenant is the foundation of history before and after the flood. The Lord was in relationship with man in his task and calling. And I want to suggest to you as well tonight that there was no time ever in man's history where he was left with simply natural law or his reason or general principles by which to interpret his life and task. God spoke to him. God revealed himself to him. God spoke with particular men from the beginning. They had the possibility of obeying God as his covenant partner, as his image bearer, as his dominion servant, or not. Of course, we know that Adam in the garden, there's a symbol of God's power and judgment with the tree. It's not that Adam was there to earn his salvation. He was actually made upright. There was nothing lacking in him, but he might forfeit it by disobedience. So we, we can, I suppose, suppose, talk of a paradise covenant between Adam and his creator. God is the Lord. Adam is a creature. Any covenant between a greater and a lesser is already a covenant of grace. I put it to you, there is no such thing ever as a covenant of works in Scripture whereby man is justifying himself anywhere. He lived by God's grace and favor. The good news, isn't the meaning of the Evangelion, good news is that God is Lord and King. That's what it means. Now, Adam even believed that. He had to believe that. And he walked in the favor of that. So God calls all men from Adam through Noah to the present to serve and obey him. He's the same God. The covenant mandate was to develop and keep God's creation in obedience to him. And I don't see any evidence in scripture that that's changed. Jesus is the second Adam. And who's he mistaken for in the garden at the resurrection? The gardener. He is the gardener. He's the new gardener. He's the true gardener. And he calls us as prophets, priests, and kings in the earth. We're not monks in a cloister, in a dualistic, bifurcated universe of nature grace as in Romanism, we are a royal priesthood. We are not monastic pilgrims. You know, the emphasis always on pilgrimage and suffering that I hear in the 2K theology overlooks that we're also soldiers. We're also ambassadors. We are prophets. We're priests. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. The Noahic covenant then is not some general abstract covenant with creation or men in general that generates or creates a common kingdom. There is no such thing as a common man. There is no such thing as a common kingdom. Finally, lastly, the sociological cultural problem in six minutes. Are you ready for this? 
You got all that, I know, I can see you've all got that. So, the theological problem, I think, of 2K is related to the sociological cultural problem. The Noahic covenant is invoked, by Van Drunen at least, not by Matthew tonight, not simply as the basis of uh, two realms that don't mix, but as the basis critically, and I think this is critical, of cultural homogeneity, sameness. That is, the sameness we see around us, that is the commonness we experience with non-believers in cultural life, areas of agreement is a result, we're told, of the covenant with Noah. That's what gives the two, the two kingdoms theology an apparent plausibility. I don't think it's the cogency of its theological case regarding Noah. Or it's its rhetorical power in the Western church context. Van Drunen and company repeatedly argue that culture, education, society, family, business, trades all operate in a common way in terms of common principles and values. Van Drunen says this, and I quote, because God has upheld the natural order and sustained all human beings as his image bearers through the Noahic covenant. It's the root of his argument. When Christians promote justice, fair trade, honesty, faithfulness, There is nothing distinctly Christian about these because they're grounded in the Noahic covenant. Now, listen to what Van Drunen says very closely, and I quote, The odds are good, in fact, that if you ask your unbelieving neighbor whether he believes in freedom, satisfaction of basic needs, ecological responsibility, fair trade, healthy local business, he will heartily agree, end quote. Now, until I read that, I actually thought David and I occupied the same planet. Now I'm convinced that possibly we don't. And I think some of these guys respectfully need to exit the academic cloister and go and live in the Islamic world for just six months and then come back and teach this particular uh, doctrine. The argument is like this. We don't need to transform culture or creation with redemptive principles, not only because the order we're living in is headed for destruction, so it's a waste of time. Horton says, pray, grow spiritually, do some evangelism, but not evangelization. We're told that the Noahic covenant guarantees that the common kingdom shares our basic values, so it doesn't need healing. It doesn't need redeeming. It's common. Well, let's start very quickly, and I know I'm running out of time here, but Matthew just gave me the nod for five more minutes. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I'm kidding. He didn't do that. Let's start by, by noting quickly that this is not what the covenant with Noah guarantees. What non-believers benefit from in God's covenant of grace with Noah and his seed is a promise of stability and regularity. Seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night, not to flood the earth again. It's an everlasting covenant. God binds himself to it with all creatures. It's unalterable. The sun rises on the just and the unjust. My question is this. Where is the promise of shared cultural moral norms in the covenant with Noah? Now, let's suppose for a moment that Van Drunen is correct and that somehow that is implied in this text. Well, we should expect widespread cultural homogeneity of cultural norms. In fact, based on God's character and nature and covenant, there must have been, and there must be. But few ideas in the history of the world, I think, could be more empirically false or historically nonsensical than the idea that we have experienced historically cultural sameness. And if we haven't experienced that sameness, God's a liar, if that's what the Noahic covenant says. If we haven't experienced it, God is lying. History is the record of radical conflict of values, cultures, 
in every respect. Think even about Canada today. Abortion, human sexuality, marriage, law, political organization, political organization, every field of study. Think about the evolutionary paradigm that dominates the institutions today in every field of study. It's hostile to Christianity at every point. Today, our own culture shares no consensus, in fact, on whether there are two sexes. David Randrun should knock on my neighbor's door who, doesn't actually, who thinks that gender is fluid and there may be 14 genders. Anybody understanding what I'm saying? In the last century, very quickly now, cultural hegemony, where was it in Hitler's Germany? Stalin's Russia, Mao's China, Pol Pot's Cambodia, Mussolini's Italy, the Ayatollah's Iran. Where is it today in Canada? You see, the Noahic Covenant is not primarily invoked to show why physical laws and seasons abide, but why we share subjectively the same norms. Why I'm supposed to share subjectively the same norms with my neighbor in the common kingdom. But God's covenant with Noah says nothing about whether my neighbor will understand and abide by that, only that God stands by his justice. You can't make a prescriptive text into a descriptive one. In short, and in conclusion, the 2K view of culture becomes, I think, an exercise in question begging. We don't need Christian transformation of culture because there's widespread agreement about norms and cultural questions in our present culture. Claiming this agreement is due to the Noahic Covenant, I think, is absurd. What is, in fact, notable about the agreement we have enjoyed in recent centuries in the West on some of these things is that it has been the exception to the rule. The Western world, Christendom, has been the exception to the rule. The reason for cultural hegemony to the degree we observe it today in North America in the leafy suburbs of Escondido, perhaps, is found in the very place that I think Van Drunen doesn't want us to look. Christian evangelization of the West and our application of the gospel to every aspect of culture. The reason you have stir-fry and chicken wings is because of Christianity, actually. Charles Darwin made that point in his journals as he traveled around the Pacific Islands and and highlighted the value of Christian missionary work. He says, if any voyager disparages their work, they had better pray that if they get shipwrecked onto one of those islands, it's one of the islands that's learned the lessons of the gospel. Otherwise, they are stir-fried man flesh. And I think that there is a blindness in this regard from what I've read thus far. Most societies live antithetical to God's word. Romans 1 makes that clear. And they apply that depraved mind to all the cultural arts. Paul tells us, actually, that fallen man's state will not submit to God's law. So go to Pakistan today, where my parents were for 17 years, and the odds are not good that your neighbor will share your Christian view that the genitals of little girls should not be mutilated or that a man should not have up to four wives and beat them at his leisure. They're not good. The odds are not good, they weren't good for William Carey in India, that his neighbor would agree with him that his wife should not be burned alive on his funeral pyre, and so he worked to get the practice of seti banned. A variety of non-Christian scholars have shown that the free trade capitalism of the West works only in the West because elsewhere it's stifled by corruption, greed, and an unwillingness to recognize private property. You get the point. Even in the West, man theft and enslavement was socially approved until William Wilberforce, in the name of the gospel and the covenant, worked to outlaw it. My colleague in, in the United States, Brian Matson, has pointed out this very explicitly. 
when he says attacking explicitly Christian engagement to transform culture as unnecessary because we already have shared values is like attacking the use of the polio vaccine as unnecessary because no one has polio. The only reason men don't have polio is because of the vaccine. And the only reason there is any cultural agreement today in North America is because our evangelical forebears ignored the arguments of previous two kingdoms type pietism and pressed on with the application of the gospel to every aspect of life and culture. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Boot. This portion of the program, we were going to just start a little dialogue between uh, our two doctors here and, and the audience as well. And so uh, we were going to give them each an opportunity to ask each other a couple of questions, and then we will go into uh, questions from the audience. And you can text questions. Uh, if you get your cell phone out, you can just punch it in. I come up with an order here. Um, I was going to give Matt the last word, so I figured in that regards, then we'll, uh, we'll start with the questions from, from uh, Dr. Boot. Um, I think um, possibly uh, the, the risk of the first two addresses was that uh, perhaps we passed a bit like ships in the night because, uh, as I said to David just a moment, to Matthew a moment ago, I felt I was being introduced to another. Um, or reworking to some degree of, of Two Kingsmen. I think that uh, Matthew has his own um, reasons for that in terms of his own scholarship and, and research and so on. I guess my, my primary, primary question would be in terms of the way that it's been popularly articulated of, as the common and redemptive kingdom. Uh, the sort of struggle that uh, I have with it is that the, the common kingdom, which apparently is being governed by... Uh, principles or norms or laws that we share in common with the non-believer, when we experience uh, the, the, the common kingdom attacking vociferously the redemptive kingdom, which we do, for example, in Canada, but in Christians in many other parts of the world, it's more severe, is God somehow at war with himself? Now, I, I'm going to presume that um, you're going to tell me, no, God isn't at war with himself. Satan is you know, using the common kingdom in such a way as to attack the redemptive. So my question becomes, how does God go about changing the common kingdom so that it doesn't endlessly attack the redemptive, seeing as the grace and special revelation of the redemptive isn't allowed to transform it? So are we not in an endless dialectic where there is never, uh, we can never even approach a resolution because um, we have... um, two realms that don't seem to touch. I mean, I think that at least has been my conclusion from, uh, they don't touch meaningfully. That's my conclusion from reading Van Drunen and Horton so far. Can you comment on that and help us understand that? Yeah. um, As far as, is is my mic on? Okay. As far as I'm aware, I'm not sure, and maybe you have heard something. I'm not sure if anyone besides David Van Drunen uses the phrase common kingdom or if anyone before him used the phrase common kingdom. Um, I think classic two kingdoms uh, language would emphasize m- more eschatological descriptive terms. So like temporal kingdom or secular kingdom versus secular in the way I defined it versus spiritual kingdom. So in that sense, the language of common kingdom 
can give rise to the very, I think, confusion that you're describing. Um, the reality is both kingdoms are Christ's. That was the title of my dissertation, Christ's Two Kingdoms. Um, neither the pagans nor devils own any kingdom, or, or the devil own any kingdom. And when we talk about all people being under the same norms, they're not, they're not anybody's norms except God's norms, right? So they are created norms. They're the norms written into the created order. That's what natural law in the Christian sense means. So you could never say that Christ's two kingdoms were at war with each other by definition because it's, it's the present age, which is creation, and it's the age to come, which is creation redeemed. So they're not at war. What you do have is people fighting against God for control of one or the other of the kingdoms. Um, is it the same creation that's being redeemed, or is it just our bodies that escape through no, the I mean, narrow Colossians, window? That's why I try to emphasize Colossians 1, verse 15 and 20, which makes very clear that the all things that Christ is the creator of, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, very clearly all things, that is the very same all things that he is reconciling. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Now, what does that mean in terms of carryover? Because I also talked about some points of discontinuity that the New Testament talks about. Well, I, I think Calvin's helpful here. Calvin actually appeals to an Aristotelian distinction between the substance of things and their accidents. And the accident is, is characteristics of something that aren't essential to it. So Calvin says the substance of the creation is going to be redeemed and endure into the kingdom of God, but its accidents, its peculiarities, um, are not going to endure. And that's a mystery, right? At that point we say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's a bit of a mystery because sometimes Scripture testifies to discontinuity and sometimes continuity. I think that... Okay. Is there anything you said that I... You want no, to I thought that clarifies what you mean. Um, uh, the how how if if the if the primary distinction then is not a common kingdom and a redemptive kingdom as as Van Drunen has articulated and I think Horton seems to also imply, um, and it's really we're just talking about two ages. I don't think any orthodox reformed certainly individual would deny that there is a degree of discontinuity between the present age and the the age to come. That we don't see the full consummation of the kingdom until Christ return. I mean even. An ardent post-millennialist would totally, I think, agree with that. Um, I think what, I'm, uh, what would be difficult is to, uh, obviously, as temporal, human, as temporal beings living in a temporal historical order, how do I actually live in two ages? I mean, one of the distinctions that you made um, was that we're not, we, we're not reigning with Christ at the moment. I think the New Testament says we are. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places already, and that we have been made new creatures in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So already the new age, that's why the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. The new age has already broken in um, to history. And, uh, you know, the creation is now just longing for that final payoff, you know, that Paul talks about, you know, the, 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 in, what was it, 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about the two Adams, the image of the earthly man and the heavenly man. The last enemy to be defeated is death. At that point is the full rest, restoration of all things. But in that sense, I can't either, I can't actually live in two ages. I can only live in this age. And, um, but the, the, the eschatological reality of who Christ is, now seated with God at the right hand of the Father, presently ruling and reigning, Psalm 2, commanding the kings of the earth as the Messiah, 
that is breaking into my reality and creation at every level. I, if that's what you're saying, then I actually, I, I, I'm struggling to find a debate. Well, uh, but, um, but, yeah, no, this, this is part of what I've been, those who followed me and stuff I've written online, um, or will read my book when it comes out, um, I think certain people's versions of the two kingdoms doctrine and certain implications that some people have drawn have distracted everybody to the degree to which the two kingdoms doctrine is not a recent invention, but it's a basic part of reformed theology that's actually rooted in older Augustinian and New Testament theology. Um, and I think uh, we, we need to sort of get past a kind of flag-waving thinking of this. Well, this is what... So often people come up to me and say, well, what do you think of the two kingdoms? Well, what do you mean when you're asking me that question? Um, whose two kingdoms are you talking about? I think that uh, you said it exactly right. We are in the present age, right? I don't think anyone here would argue otherwise. But the future age is breaking in. Mm -hmm. And there's overlap and there's tension. And the whole purpose of two kingdoms theology is to help us wrestle with what that means. So I would agree that we reign with Christ, but I would not agree that we reign with Christ in the way that we one day will. Agreed. And I would say that what it means to reign with Christ now is more defined by the experience of cross-bearing service and service than it is by the sort of triumph that we would often wish for and that we are praying for ultimately to come with thy kingdom come. So I guess, well, maybe I'll, what I was going to say next, I'll wait till my chance to ask a question because I don't want to launch something back at you. Well, it was, it's your turn to it's ask my a turn. question. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I also felt like we were sort of two ships passing in the night where I sort of articulated what I think a biblical and thoroughly Calvinian two kingdoms doctrine is. And I, Calvin has guided me. You, you uh, described it as reworking. I would say it's, you know, as, as, as you said in, in your introduction, I was a student at Westminster Seminary, California. I was uh, David Van Drunen's research assistant. He and I had many discussions and debates uh, where I would argue with him or disagree with him. One of the things I've always argued that he should do is be more eschatological. Though incidentally, I feel like it was Michael Horton who taught me the importance of eschatology. So there's tensions between those two in that respect, I would argue. But what Dave did for me is he motivated me to get behind this as something he was just doing, right? You, you read his, his first book on it, and it shows how much this has been in various different versions throughout the history of the Reformed tradition and even before the Reformed tradition. So it motivated me to go to Calvin and go to the New Testament and see what is this two kingdoms doctrine all about? Where did it come from? Why is it so helpful? So I guess the question coming out of all of that is if, if we set, you know, ultimately David Van Drunen is only one person and we could sit and go back and forth about this jot or tittle of his thought, but I don't know that that's the helpful thing to do. So if you set his thought aside, and if we think of the two kingdoms doctrine more as an eschatological theology like it was in Calvin, like it is in other thinkers, how does that move the discussion forward in a positive way for you? Um, do you see any value it could have moving forward when understood in those terms, rather than as a, well, what do you think of this particular theologian's <clears throat> version of <throat> it? Well, I think, I think, um, I think for me, the... Uh, well, first of all, you know, obviously I respect Calvin, um, but I think Calvin himself was still trying to liberate himself from the uh, Thomistic mm -hmm. environment um, in which he had studied and uh, in which he was still trying to break free, on, free from. So I still think there were elements in Calvin 
that we might call scholastic or sure. uh, um, unduly rationalistic. Uh, also, Calvin is obviously reflecting in his own time in the context of Christendom where, mm -hmm. you know, he can appeal to the law of nations, which is essentially, you know, uh, Germanic um, um, law in his area, at least. Um, certainly law that has been heavily influenced by biblical law, not just Roman law. Um, and I think, <clears throat> obviously, Calvin is always, it seems to me, interacting when he speaks about um, uh, uh, the temporal and, uh, and the eternal kingdom. He, is, he does have the Roman magisterium in view a lot of the time. Uh, but I'm not an expert in Calvin like you are. So, but I do think we can also move past Calvin mm -hmm. uh, into a greater consistency with, with, with Scripture. Um, uh, and I think to some degree the Puritans were doing that. I think to some degree the, the, the Dutch, the neo-Calvinists were, 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 were striving to do that. I think um, my biggest challenge as I think about this is that I only see one kingdom of God. I see one reign of God. And I see God reigning, um, yes, in his church, the jurisdictions of the church and the state and the family, but I see them all as under his reign and rule. They express it in different ways, but if the civil magistrate is a believer and submits to Christ, he is within the kingdom of God. If the, if the godly husband or wife submits to mm -hmm. Christ, then they are within the kingdom of God. I think you were helpful in talking about the organic and the institutional church in that regard. I'm not sure how the ongoing use of two kingdoms actually helps us in that discussion in the sense that I think, why can't we just talk about thy kingdom come, thy will be done? One kingdom, one reign of God expressed in different ways. And even in the church, we recognize it will only be expressed to a limited degree given the imperfection of all Christians. You know, I mean, I'm a pastor. Goodness me, there's a lot of sin in my church and, and some of it comes from me. Um, so, you know, we recognize that we're all sinners and that sin is in every department of life. I just think that it would, it would bring clarity. I, don't, I think it's helpful. I don't think it's um, unhelpful to have the eschatological discussion, which I think we've had for a long time about already and not yet in terms of eschatology. You might suggest to me as somebody who, if we want to use the new terms that were fairly recent theologically of post-millennial, um, or uh, optimistic amillennial, um, uh, that um, uh, you might think I haven't over-realized uh, eschatology. I might think that you have an under-realized soteriology in terms of what we can expect, because in the Great Commission, the way I see it is Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Mm -hmm. All of it. Colossians 1, you quoted. Ephesians 1 says the same. Therefore, you go and disciple, discipline, teach all the nations, ethnoi, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them everything I've commanded you. Now, that seems to me an expansive, totalizing kingdom mission, and we can't expect to see it consummated and completed, certainly, until Christ returns. But I think that as we work, as his fellow workers, as we serve as ambassadors, you know, it's there, I think, in, in our language, we talk about public servants in the political sphere. We talk about prime ministers we talk about ministry of corrections because we were so influenced by the gospel that we thought about the public sphere as kingdom ministry if it's subject to Christ. So in what you're saying, I agree. We can move it forward if we talk about um, present age, future age, and, and what comes through there. And, and, and talk, but I, I'm not sure that we... I think it's harder to advance when we, rate, when we keep clinging on to the two kingdoms 
language because I think that introduces confusion into people's minds. Yeah, what, one, yeah. yeah it, it sounds to me, though, that when you say that and sort of put it in those terms, it's more equibbling over the word of two kingdoms. So if I said all the same stuff I just said, but said it's two, twofold government, which is another phrase Calvin used to describe the same thing, um, you know, then you might agree with it, which means it's not really a theological disagreement. It's just, well, is saying this is another kingdom a wise use of terms. And, of course, any sort of shorthand, two kingdoms, you could say two reigns, you could say whatever, um, is going... You, you can never communicate all the nuances and sophisticated dimensions of a theology in two words. Um, and that would be true of sure. many of our doctrines. But the fact remains that we desperately need a way to think about our way of being faithful to Christ's lordship mm -hmm. in a way that takes the fundamental distinction between the present age and the age to come seriously and that doesn't conflate them. And that you see Christians conflating them all the time with disastrous results. You see it in Anabaptism with the denial that Christians can be involved in government. You see it in monasticism and the Catholic Church's teaching regarding marriage. You see it in, in Christians who all they can think about is politics when they think about how well Christ's kingdom is doing. And, and you ask them if things are going well with Christ's kingdom. And the way they answer the question leads you to think, the, they think the answer is determined with respect to Western politics or something like that. Um, as if Christ's kingdom can't still be progressing and the West declining in some way. So I think, I guess that's what I, I would ask you then is, if, if we really want to recognize that Christ is Lord over all, mm -hmm. and yet we want to distinguish what that lordship looks like when it's through the Holy Spirit and the voluntary obedience of the church in all of life, we mm -hmm. want to distinguish between that and the way in which Christ is Lord even over um, the Islamic State, right? Or even over um, communist China, mm -hmm. right? We need to have some way to do that and to help Christians navigate that reality. I, on, I don't care that much if we call it two kingdoms or not, but is not something like that, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. absolutely necessary for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think you talked about limiting the um, making the church being the church institutionally and the church being the church organically. I think that's mm -hmm. a helpful um, uh, distinction. I think if we're looking for an interpretative key for Christians in history as to how the kingdom is doing, um, you know, which is partly what we're asking here, and I think to some degree some of the two kingdoms advocates at least are reacting to, you know, what I think Van Drunen called the Kuyperian captivity of the church, um, or some of the more theonomic emphasis uh, that's also been there in the, in the Reformed uh, tradition, that we're, we're all wrestling with, actually, um, how do we as Christians react in a context where, I, you know, I work with Christian Concern in the UK, where Christians are being arrested for preaching in the street, where they're being fired from their jobs for wearing a cross, where they're being fired for praying, sharing the gospel with a Muslim. Um, some of these things are going all the way to the European courts. How do Christians um, sort of navigate those waters when, you know, um, the LGBTQ issues, for example, and all of that? Um, so I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, and I recognize, you know, we've got the two, you've got the kind of Jerry Falwell response over here, and you've got the re totally retreatist response over here. But I, I think if we're going to take a scriptural um, uh, key, I think the answer is um, the covenant of God insofar as um, righteousness exalts a nation. So 
if, the, if as goes the church, so goes the world. Now, if we look at the church in the Western, I don't think it's any surprise that Canadian culture or American culture or British culture is where it is today when you look at the church of Jesus Christ. I think we're antinomian. I think we're um, consumerist. I think we're on the whole pietistic, retreatist. We believe in a psychological gospel. I think we've ascent, we're for, not across the board. I'm not being judgmental, but I think large swathes of the church have lost a strong handle on what the gospel of the kingdom is. We've ceased to apply it in our family life, in our educational life, in the areas where we are free to apply it. And as we failed as salt and light, we're not leaven, as Jesus said, and therefore our culture is decaying around us. So I think, you know, if we look at Scripture, I think we look at Romans 11, God, uh, Paul warns um, the, 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 the church, he says, well, you know, you say that the natural branch was broken off so you might be grafted in. Well, you too beware, because if God didn't spare the natural branch, and then if we look at uh, Jesus speaking to the churches in the book of Revelation, um, and we see their, their condition and what happened to them, I think um, there's a warning there for the church. And I think that um, when we see a country like Canada that, well, let's take the United Kingdom, I mean, the Queen... Um, swore an oath to uphold the gospel and law of Jesus Christ. President, the American president puts his hand on the Bible, used to be on an open Bible and swears the oath of office, used to be open to the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy. Canada was once called the Dominion, from, uh, the Dominion of Canada from Psalm 72 verse 8. As I think the church has steadily abandoned its role, the culture, I think, follows suit. That makes sense if the church is salt and light. So I think what's happening in the West is that is a wake-up call to the church that God deals with us covenantly in terms of his word. Um, and that means that we're seeing more Christian cultures emerging in Africa and South America. Perhaps China will be the largest Christian country on earth within 50 years. And the United States and Britain and Canada could go into steep decline until we are recovered as a people by a foreign missionary effort from the places that we took the gospel. So what I'm saying is I think that it's to do with our faithfulness as God's people that the church is where it is, that the culture is where it is today. So I agree. The idea that we say, if only we can get Ted Cruz into office, all will be well in the United States. I, I mean, I think that's a myth, totally a myth. But I think if the church would say we must return to faithfulness to God's word, to the administration of church discipline, to applying our faith in our family, in education, in every free sphere we're allowed to do so, as people turn to Christ, a righteous people will demand righteous laws. I mean, it wasn't until the late 1960s that abortion became legal. Sure, but, but at the same time, you don't have, where I'm from in Georgia, mm -hmm. you go back behind the 1960s, and you're going to find a lot of stuff that is absolutely and abhorrently in opposition to the gospel of Christ. Mm. What I find is that white Christians in the South tend to be much more uh, imbibed with the sense that things are going badly and much more worried about where things are going than black Christians do. And that doesn't mean black Christians have a better perspective. They just have a different perspective. But they've known what it means to suffer brutally at the hands of a thoroughly Bible Belt Christian culture. So I guess I would... I would push back a little bit on what sounds like, I'm not saying you're doing this, but it can sound that way, like a golden age mentality, and say, no, I think often, I mean, was the days of Christendom really that the church was so obedient? It seems like it's just rampant with errors and horrors. I think often faithfulness to the gospel is more likely to come to, uh, 
expression in suffering. And I think that's exactly what the book of Revelation is telling us. You want to conquer, you suffer. That's the message of the book of Revelation. And that's the, the book we've been given for the future of the church. Now, that's not to say, I am not denying that fidelity to Christianity will not, could not have cultural fruit. And I am certainly not denying that much of what we value in the West is the fruit of Christianity. I think the whole liberal tradition, by which I mean democracy, human rights, all those things clearly come from Christianity. So I'm not questioning that. But I do think that faithful Christianity is more often than not going to lead to suffering, not some sort of cultural um, triumph on the part of Christians. Sure. So that, that may, may come down to I, the... I better just jump in here. Otherwise, we are going to be here all night, <laughs> I, I am afraid. Um, I, I, I'm going to ask a couple of the questions from the audience here. And so uh, for Dr. Tuniga, first to respond to this one, uh, how does it make sense to speak of civil or common righteousness, can there be such a thing? And they put a note here, Lord's Day 23, question and answer 60, tells us that we can only speak of righteous acts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't call it common righteousness, but I mean, civil righteousness is is a, a standard category in Reformed theology, and it's simply a way of saying it's outward righteousness. It doesn't reflect an inwardly changed heart, but to the naked eye, it might appear perfectly righteous. Um... Sometimes non-believers put Christians to shame by their righteousness. I mean, certain things that, that Gandhi did, for instance. Certain things um, that people resisting the Nazis in World War II who were not Christians did. Looks thoroughly righteous. Now, are we supposed to say, well, that's just all terrible stuff. We have nothing to do with it. Are we supposed to say that's not righteousness at all? Well, no, but we distinguish it from gen- the genuine real article. So civil righteousness is outward righteousness. It, it, it's what... To human eyes, looks righteous, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's actually a result of the work of the Spirit of God. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, 1 Timothy 1 uh, really deals with uh, this sort of um, civil use of the law. Paul, Paul says that the law is not ra- made for the righteous, but for the sinner. And he quotes from there in 1 Timothy 1, he quotes directly from the Decalogue and from the case law of Moses and he says, and anything else which is contrary to my gospel. So he's saying that, I think he's saying that the reign of Christ is expressed in, this, in the public sphere insofar as God's law, at least, not only makes men aware of their sin, but also restrains their sin. And that's an expression of Christ's reign. I mean, after all, if we take Philippians 2, which we heard quoted uh, seriously as well, um, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, many of those people will not do so willingly, um, but they will do so finally. And I think uh, a temporal expression of that is the fact that um, in any society, uh, there will be some people who are kicking against uh, the goads. I mean, you cannot, you can only enforce law in a society where the vast majority of people are already enforcing it in their own lives. Otherwise, half the, 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 the society would need to be in the police force. So, where usually when, um, uh, when civil law changes, it's because juries have ceased convicting people on the basis of those particular crimes. And, and, and in the end, this becomes, it becomes essentially dead. So, um, no, I think that um, we can speak about a, a, a sort of an outward civil, um, if we want to use the term righteousness, that where the law is restraining evil. The next question that I've, I've, I've got a lot of questions here, so I'll, I'll pick some that I find probably more interesting. Uh, common kingdom, 
are in this common kingdom of Canada, this is a abortion is being trumpeted. Is this a legitimate cause for Christians to rally together in whatever that whatever that might look like to see that abortion is made illegal? Would that would that be a, a common kingdom issue, or, or how, and how does the two kingdom view? How would you deal with that with your with the outlook of a two kingdom view? Well, I, I think it's both. I just don't think you can separate issues into one kingdom or the other for the most part. I think the church needs to proclaim very clearly the dignity of all of human life in the image of God, right? The prohibition against murder. Uh, and, and not just the obligation that we don't take human life, but that we care for human life. The positive side of the commandment, do not murder, as articulated in the Heidelberg Catechism. Mm-hmm. Um, so the church needs to proclaim that, and it needs to proclaim that without compromise as being a clear implication of the gospel for all people, including the state, and that it's the state's job to punish injustice, and it's the state's job insofar as it is able to prevent these things. And then I think the organic church then goes out, and we are you know, obligated as citizens to seek you know, advance in the way of justice insofar as we are able to, just as I would say with any other particular moral issue. Now, does that mean that we should go into the public realm and say, this is the only perfect position I would hold, and I would not support legislation moving in that direction in one way or another? So, I mean, you're an MP, and if if there was a law that, that came to the parliament now that said, you know, should abortion be prohibited in every case except rape, incest, and life of the mother? And you might say, well, I don't even think it should be legitimate in cases of rape, incest, life of the mother. But that is clearly a compromise moving in the right direction, so I'm going to support that. Because I recognize that due to the hardness of human hearts, sometimes we might not be able to persuade people to prohibit it in all those circumstances. Um, the church can't then say, the church should never preach that abortion should be illegal except in in rape and system life of the mother, because the church should say that abortion's always horrible. But what that means in politics, in, in, in secular engagement, is going to be a little bit more complicated based on what is possible, what is attainable, uh, and, and what um, possibilities individuals of us have. I mean, your, your possibilities are going to be greater in that area than mine um, because of your position. Yeah. Um... The uh, the life issue, I, I agree that the commandment you shall not murder um, involves both the prohibition of murder and the promotion of life. Um, it's absolutely the church's mandate. I think I think I think it's part of the gospel. You see, Jesus says, "Seek first the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God, and His righteousness." Um, and uh, we have to pursue that. It's an expression. It's an articulation of the gospel of the reign of King Jesus that those things are ended. Now, um, you know, some people ask, well, aren't you trying to impose um, your morality on other people? Well, the reality is all law is the legislation of somebody's morality. And if we can convince those who are the elected representatives of us in, in Western form of government to abolish it, then we should do so. So absolutely, it's our, it's a, it has to be, I believe, a core mandate of the church. I mean, I'm, I'm gratified to hear Matthew say that because I think that um, in interviews with David Van Drunen, uh, he, he, he has said certainly different things about what the church's obligation is or is not in that particular context. In fact, I think when Doug Wilson asked him that if, if um, you know, uh, uh, America or, or a state in America returned to Christ uh, largely, uh, genuinely, uh, as a majority of people and the civil magistrate did, and they applied that reign into the civil realm, would God be pleased or displeased? And I think David Van Drunen said he'd be displeased. So I'm very gratified to hear 
uh, Matthew adopt a, a different perspective on that? The latest, the night is getting late here. Um, I think I'll just give each of you five minutes, uh, give or take a little bit, just to sum up your thoughts for the evening, starting with uh, Dr. Boot. Well, I, I had some closing remarks prepared. I'm not sure they're much value now, um, now that I've converted Matthew. So, um, uh, uh, I mean, the Lord has convert. I mean, the, the Lord has done that. We, he does the work, right, Matthew? I'm, I'm, te- I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, so, um, I, I'm, uh, I'm teasing him. Uh, I think probably the first of all, you know, I, I'd want to put it on the record that I'm, I'm you know, really thrilled to, to have actually heard what Matthew has had to say, and I think he can certainly play a role with the likes of Horton and Van Drunen and others in, in actually uh, bringing a better understanding of Calvin to bear on their thinking, and I think help with this flag-waving issue that you've talked about and uh, the unnecessary um, polarization in, in, uh, in the reform world on this. Um, I think perhaps what in future discussions or articles and things that could be teased out, um, an area which I would want to hear a bit more about, uh, is that when we, when we say that the, um, the, uh, the, the state or the civil order, which we believe to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, um, acts and works and, uh, and, and does things, we, we recognize that we're holding them accountable to God's standard, not some arbitrary standard of their own. And we talk about natural law or general revelation. One of the problems, though, I think, with the articulations of natural law as they've off, they're often presented is it's very difficult to find people actually agree on the content of natural law. Um, what is it? Uh, and um, the, uh, you know, of course, there was a Stoic Greek uh, articulation of natural law. Um, there is a sort of um, uh, Roman Catholic version that's kind of Christianized. Um, there's the sort of Protestant version, which I think for the reformers, you know, was the law of nations, was essentially a biblical law. I don't see that scripture and general revelation say different things. And so I think what troubles me a little bit, and not about what Matthew has said here tonight, but I think where this conversation could be advanced, is how we understand the role of God's revealed word, his revealed law, as we engage the culture. I think we want to boil it down sometimes to common grace, natural law principles. And my question is this, what does natural law mean in a post-Darwinian world? That is, in a culture which says, (laughs) this is a world really of chance, of chaos, um, and uh, we can't really speak authentically about natural law and norms in that old reform sense, what role does Scripture really bring to bear on these things? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there isn't clear law. All creation is law. I think I'd have to agree with Doyover there that the universe is meaning. God's Word is meaning in creation and in Scripture. I, what I can't believe is that those things conflict. Now, I think there are interpretative challenges that you've raised, and I wrestle with this in my book, The Mission of God. Quick plug there. Um, this, this, this question of the kingdom and how we think about the kingdom and, uh, uh, and what, is the, what is the law of the kingdom? And, you know, and let me lay my cards on the table, is that I would be saying that I think one of the things that has afflicted the church in recent generations in response to the culture is antinomianism. 
I think we have turned up our nose at God's law. I think we feel that we are in a position to morally critique God's law. Um, certainly, Calvin's mentor, um, Booser, did not feel in a position to do that. Um, and I think the Puritans who built America or established that vision um, and gave us parliamentary democracy uh, had a more robust understanding of the role of God's revealed law for his church and for the world. And I think we've backed away from that. I think uh, you know, how many churches have retained God's law in their liturgies, for example. So that would be my first thing. I, I would want to encourage us to think through um, what is the content of natural law. And if we're going to appeal to natural law or general revelation, let's remember the radicality of the fall, not just the radicality of creation and the radicality of redemption, but the radicality of the fall means that man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. So I can't rely on my neighbor to have a grasp of what God has revealed in his creation. There's no such thing as a natural law in a sense that it's in any way disconnected from God or conflicts with special revelation. That would be the first thing. Very quickly, the second thing in one minute is, because they're loving this, so I don't want to... to, (laughs) Okay. I I think I need to get Matthew... Just give me one uh, one minute on that, because he can respond in his, his closing statement. The other aspect I think that we could talk more about um, in this area of eschatology is, is um, this, how much we can realize of gospel reality. I, I would want to challenge Matthew that the, that the prophets have more to say than pilgrimage and suffering. I think it's a primitivist notion to think that the normative condition of the church is suffering, persecution, being flogged, and everything else. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. I don't believe the normative state of the church is suffering. I actually believe, yes, we, we come through the cross, as all believers must come to the foot of the cross, and God may have suffering in store for us, but this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And Paul indicates that the last, Christ is reigning, he's putting all, bringing everything into subjection, Hebrews 1, he's putting everything under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated in history is death. That's the last one. So I don't believe the normative condition of the church in history is the prison cell, the, 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 the lash of the whip, and the heads rolling under ISIS. I don't believe that's the normative because I believe that Christ will have the supremacy in everything, including the history that he has foreordained in his providence. Thank you, Dr. Boot. I think this is going to be the last time I will be moderating this because they'll never ask me again because I've not done a good job of running the clock. Done an excellent job. <laughs> excellent. Uh, Dr. Tuninga, the last word goes to you. Uh, you have five minutes to either respond to Dr. Boot or lay it out as you'd like us, the, our parting, parting thought, yeah. I suppose. Um, obviously, there's, we could go on here forever, and I have lots of things I could say. I want to say something really practical, then I want to say something really general, and then maybe briefly respond to what you, you just said there at the end. Really practical. I, um, I truly believe that in our reform tradition and in our reform circles, we need to try to get past the tendency to be fascinated with sort of theological debate for itself and the way that can lead to a kind of flag waving. And, and so I would... I would just urge all of us, you know, to, to try to have these discussions in ways that would get at the heart of what Scripture teaches, at the heart of the tradition, you know, and, and practically with this particular two kingdoms issue, it, 
there are all kinds of versions, as you said, of it. There are all, someone might say this here, someone might say that here. But what's true? You know, what does the church need to hear? What is the gospel telling the church in our day and age about the way the kingdom breaks into this age and what faithfulness looks like? Um, dig, dig up what Calvin uh, says on this. Dig up what, what Paul is saying in these, in these various areas. Um, and that blends into, into the more general point. So, so I guess that, that's just a plea for charity and using this throughout whatever denominations we're in. I mean, I'm a member of the United Reformed Churches. Um, use our common desire to see the gospel worked out to work through this and work to common position rather than just see it as some kind of debate or battle. Um, like I think tonight has been an example of that. The second thing I, I want to say is I think the need of the hour for the church is to be gospel-centered and Christ-centered in everything we do, including our political cultural engagement. And so I want us to not just, in that sense I would push even beyond what you said, it's not just biblical law that controls how we interpret general revelation or natural law. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that is God's final word, as revealed in Jesus Christ, his final word on what its purposes are for us. And when we go into the political realm, we're not just trying to see some vision of justice or law established. We are trying to witness to Christ, who is the revelation of God. And so that, that has implications for what kind of principles we want to see embodied in terms of charity and justice and peace. But it also has implications for the way we seek the embodiment of those things, that we seek them in a Christ-like, uh, servant-oriented, sacrificial way. Um, so, and, and that's why I think, I don't see, I'm not sure what you meant when you said the normative state of the church. I mean, I don't think the church should be seeking suffering in any sense. Suffering's a bad thing in and of itself. But I do think the New Testament's consistently clear from beginning to end. You know, even when Christ says in, in John, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified and lifted up. And he's talking about going to the cross. And similarly, Revelation, the image from, from beginning to end, is not... Like, even the way you're talking, it's like suffering still means that somehow God's purposes aren't advancing enough. Somehow that means his kingdom isn't progressing. Whereas I would say, no, what he has taught us is that being Christ-like, conforming to the image of Christ, means going out and loving our neighbors with servant hearts, seeking to see them conform to the kingdom and its righteousness, and fully expecting, as it meant for Jesus, so for us, that will mean suffering. And if we're not ready for that, I think it will lead to anger. It will lead to bitterness. And I think you see that among many Christians. And so for me, this really is a gospel issue. Are Christians most upset because we feel like we're losing the West? Because we're losing power? Is that what's motivating us? Or is it our determination to see Christ witnessed in every single area of life so that it's truly the gospel coming to bear? It's truly the gospel engage, uh, that's driving our cultural engagement. So, I mean, that's at least what drives me, and that's what I would urge to drive you. And thank you all very much to have all of us. I'm sure I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. So. Gentlemen, on behalf of myself, I think I can speak for everyone. Uh, it was a spellbinding presentation, and I, I'd like to thank you both for the time and effort that you took in preparing for this. Uh, you, it, it shows, definitely. So, um, yeah, I, uh, that, I don't think that I have any more comments the, for this evening. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out this evening. I, th I, I think I, 
I, I, it's overwhelming for sure. The uh, and now you to, just got to go do it. I got to go do it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Everyone has to. Sure. So that's that's what it, living living our life wherever we are called to be. So, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.